Welcome to Willoughby Hills. I'm Heath Rosala. Thank you for joining me. Time for another episode. Got a good one today. Vishan Chakrabarty is my guest. Vishan is an architect based in New York. He is the founder and creative director of the architecture group POW, which stands for the Practice for Architecture and Urbanism. And he's the author of a couple of books. He wrote the book, A Country of Cities, A Manifesto for an Urban America. And he has a new book coming out this year called The Architecture of Urbanity, Designing for Place, Pluralism, and Planet. A lot of peas in there. I am so excited for this conversation. I hope you will get a lot out of it. I first got turned on to Vishan's work because of an editorial that he wrote for the New York Times back in December, looking at ways to increase housing across New York City. And we'll get into that today. Essentially, he figured out how to get half a million new housing units built in New York City near transit, and in ways that do not affect neighborhood character. You know, if you're outside New York, you may have one vision of what New York City looks like, probably based in Manhattan, lots of tall, tall apartment buildings. And that's spreading too. I mean, and it has been for a long time. There are big apartment buildings kind of lining the expressways as you come in from the Bronx. Long Island City in Queens has seen a lot of development of these kind of tall glass towers over the years, parts of Brooklyn as well. But Vishan's take is that we don't need more glass towers, that there are smart ways to increase our housing footprint without drastically changing the city around us. So what does that actually look like? It means taking places that might be a single story now, maybe a grocery store, a fast food restaurant, things like that. Taking that building away, putting a new building in its place that still maintains that same business at the ground level, but has apartments above it, maybe only going up, you know, four or five stories, but integrating housing as part of everything else, right? In neighborhoods, when you get out to Staten Island, which is still part of New York City, and parts of, you know, the outer reaches of Queens and stuff, there's a lot of single family homes that are on lots, very similar to any suburb you'd see anywhere else in the country. If there are vacant lots there, could you develop a lot that has maybe six units? The same height as the surrounding housing, fits in with the neighborhood, doesn't feel out of place. But now instead of having one family in a single family house, you have six families living in apartments. And what struck me about this New York Times editorial is that it's just smart policy for anywhere in the country. And I think it's something that is easily adaptable. I think there are ways to take those lessons. I mean, we've got big box stores everywhere, right? What if you could make housing around those big box stores? So that's what initially drew me to Vishan was that work. And he's got a TED Talk as well online. I'll put that in the link on Substack. If you're not already, subscribe to the Substack because you'll get my newsletter and you'll get podcast alerts and all great stuff there. But go to heathrasalad.com slash newsletter to get on that list. I will put the link to his TED Talk on the Substack page. His TED Talk is all about that kind of scale of housing. Three, four, five-story buildings. Not massive glass skyscrapers, but not single-family net-zero homes as well. That the most efficient way that we can build are these kind of middle houses. And we need a heck of a lot more of them. And, And when you look at old cities, when you look at the places that people like to visit... Here in Massachusetts, that's that's parts of Cambridge, that's parts of Brookline, that's certainly the older sections of Boston. 
When you go to New York, you see a lot of that type of housing. Philadelphia, that's kind of the way that we built in this country for a long time in an urbanist way. We post-war moved to single-family homes, and hopefully the pendulum might be swinging back because we need it from a climate standpoint as well. But anyways, what fascinated me about Vishan's work is that it's not just about housing. It's not just about urbanism. It's how all of that ties together into racial justice, into climate justice, into all these other issues that I've been talking about here on this podcast and writing about in the newsletter for a long time. All of it comes together. And in this case, his lens is through housing, which was really interesting to me. So we will get into lots of big picture ideas today, lots of great solutions. And I have become such a fan of Vishan's work, and I hope you will as well. The other piece that's really interesting that we're going to touch on at the end is that he also worked in government for a while on the reconstruction of Manhattan post 9-11, as well as some of the cool developments that happened around that time in the you know early to mid 2000s, the High Line being one of them, uh, rebuilding the East River waterfront, expanding Columbia's campus, lots of really interesting things that he did in his time in government as well. So I wanted to touch on that. And yeah, it's just, it's a really expansive, interesting conversation. If you're interested in learning more, I will link to his TED Talk and I will link to his New York Times piece in the Substack, which is a good reminder. If you're not already on the list, go to heathrasala.com slash newsletter, sign up there, put in your email. It's free. You'll get a newsletter every Wednesday and every Sunday from me, as well as updates when new podcast episodes come out. That's every two weeks. And if you're interested in supporting the work that I do, the newsletter, the podcast, you can also upgrade to a paying membership that will get you early access to the podcast and you will help support the work that I do here. I am greatly appreciative for every one of you that is a paid listener, as well as those of you that are that are free listeners. I'm happy everybody's here. I'm happy everyone's joining in the conversation. And I hope you will take something away from this conversation today. So let's get into it. Here it is, my talk with Vishan Chakrabarty. I kind of wanted to start with climate change. And I think for a lot of people, uh, they come at it from the standpoint of energy, thinking about, you know, the cars we drive or the way we heat our house. You look at climate change from the standpoint of housing itself and sort of how we build our neighborhoods, how we build our houses. Can you talk to me about just the connection between where we live and climate change? Yeah. And I think it's not just housing, obviously, but I think how we live is something that we don't question very much. And, Mm. you know, people, I think, sometimes think that how we live today is how we've always lived. Right. And yet, like, things like the suburbs barely existed before World War II. They're largely, like, about a 75-year-old invention. Right. And it's interesting. Like, cities in the United States were denser in 1900 than they were in 2000. Wow. The how we live thing is really important because there's 8 billion people on the planet a couple billion of those people have entered the middle class over the last few decades. And so how we define success around how we live is really critical to our use of resources. And so what I mean by that is if we interpret the American dream as having a house and two cars and all of that, which isn't at all the original version of the American dream, that the idea of the American dream was actually coined in 1931 and it was an idea about equal opportunity for people okay uh not about like the stuff you had i i thought you were about to say it was like coined by henry ford or gm or something but no it was actually <laughs> coined by a guy named henry Truslow adams okay 
who I, I believe it was 1931, who wrote this really beautiful paragraph about how the American dream was about equal opportunity for every man and woman in the country. Okay. And like it was a it's a pretty radical thought. Sure. Actually the notion that everyone should have equal opportunity, but it had nothing to do with stuff. Yeah. That idea comes after World War II when the country has created this enormous industrial machinery to make stuff. Yeah. For the war. Sure. And then like we need to make other stuff and so all of a sudden cheap cars and cheap housing promulgate Federal Highway Act in 1954, you know, we spent all sorts of government money creating this way of people living. Yeah. And by the way, in the 1950s, it was primarily for white people because there was redlining and all sorts of other things that only allowed for a certain group of people to access that version of the American dream. Sure. You know, these ideas of how we live dramatically impact not just climate, but things like inequity and all these other things. So one of the things that I think is interesting is if you redefine the idea of success, and I think a lot of younger generations are doing this as being something other than the accumulation of more stuff, right? then you can start to address climate in a much more holistic way. Because I think the way this climate conversation kind of started is let's live exactly the way we live now. Yeah. But let's find a bunch of technologies right. that will give us, you know, clean energy and something that like, you know, in the in the Back to the Future movies where you can just take the garbage and it'll fuel your car, <laughs> right? right? Yeah, like Mr. Fusion or whatever. Right. Mr. Fusion, right? Like Mr. Coffee. So there's just this idea that we can keep up a kind of profligate lifestyle. Yeah. And that in the meanwhile, the planet's growing. I mean, we know that population is going to curtail at some point in this century, but we're probably going to peak out at about 10 billion and about 2 billion more people. Yeah. So if you think about having 2 billion more people on the planet, the fact that you still have a lot of people living in poverty, underhoused, unhoused, that if you wanted this notion of equal opportunity for everyone yeah. within the limits that the planet kind of has, yeah. then you have to address how we live. You can't just address it through technology. Right. I mean, there's so much to dive into there. Uh, and I'm curious, even just as you talk about like the growing planet, just this notion that like the quote unquote American dream has become the Chinese dream or the Indian dream or the Brazilian dream or, you know, like. Right. And I feel like we should be questioning. There, there's a part of me that says we should be questioning that. But there's also the part of me that says, well, wait a second. If we got here in America, got to benefit from that for 100 years, like shouldn't everybody have access to that? And like, it's that balance, right? Yeah, sure. That's one of the big debates at these COP meetings and stuff that, you know, the, the, the global South says, hang on a second, you guys can't all put the brakes on our growth and our development. Sure. And there's some fairness to that argument. But I guess I think about this in a slightly different way. I talked to a lot of young people from around the planet. I was just in Europe and Madrid. I was talking to some students from all over the world. Yeah. And, you know, one of the first questions I ask is, how many of you have a driver's license? How many of you want a driver's license? Yeah. And there's this thing happening worldwide where, like, most of them don't want it. Yeah. So it's not a question of, like, robbing people of things that they actually want. It's saying that young people are questioning whether that lifestyle we created in, like, 1950s America yeah. was all that great to begin with. Right. Right? Like, in terms of everything from traffic congestion to the roles of women in that world, like 
Mad Men, right? Sure. Like, you yeah, know, yeah. right? Like, so, so, so there's all sorts of things you can say about like whether that was so great to begin with. You know, so one of the things I like to talk about and write about in terms of rethinking how we live is an idea of joy. Yeah. Right. And so it's not just this kind of eat your spinach stuff about how to save the planet because, right. you know, we can't have as much as we used to have before. I think that's totally the wrong way to approach it. I think that if you approach it as well, you could live a more socially connected lifestyle. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. We're getting post pandemic all of this public health data around social connection versus loneliness. That sure. That social connection and relationships are incredibly important for public health and mental health. That that leads to a sense of joy and community well-being that is a byproduct of a more compact lifestyle. Right. Not necessarily big cities. You can yeah. have this in villages too, right? But is the byproduct of a more compact lifestyle and not living kind of in your isolated patch of lawn where you need an hour, an hour and a half in a car to get to your job or your supermarket or your kid's school or soccer practice or whatever. I think that starts resonating people like yeah. i think it's a very different conversation than saying i would sell live this way yeah and i think it's really resonating with young people globally who are looking at the systems we set up for how you build you know equity and mortgage wealth and all these other things and saying hang on a second this is totally unfair right, right? like this doesn't work for me at all right it might have worked for my parents and my grandparents or something but it doesn't work for me at all and so that's why I think you're seeing all of this questioning. It's interesting too, just in thinking about the different perspectives on this generationally, because I feel like so much of my own, I'm, I'm turning 40 this year and so much of my childhood and uh, you know, boomers before me and Gen X before me was just steeped in this messaging and conditioning that I'm only now realizing was marketing based. Like I thought it was cultural mm -hmm. and, you know, this is how America is or whatever, but so much of it was coming from corporations and, you know, like the notion of a good life, as you say, can be being more socially connected, being part of a community. It doesn't have to be having the, you know, newest Stanley Cup or whatever the trend is. Like it's the companies that are saying, hey, consume, 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 buy. Sure. And and it's the people. And like you said, I think it is a, a post-pandemic thing. Um I, I want to go back to just you touched on something in that first answer that uh, some people may not understand, I guess. And just this idea of the newness of the suburbs and that, like, we've always built a different way. Like, that's kind of worldwide that, like, if you look at, you know, Rome or, you know, a, a Mayan ruin in Mexico or whatever, like, urbanism has kind of been an established thing that has taken us 2000 plus years to perfect, right? Yeah. And actually there was a kind of idea that's been debunked time and time again, that we only lived in urban circumstances for economic reasons, uh -huh. you know, that Neander Neanderthals were overtaken by homo sapiens, homo sapiens figured out, like figured out agriculture and could produce more food than they consumed. And so you needed a market, you needed, someplace of physical bartering. But the thing is, if you go back and look at civilization, you look at history, you find that people created collective communities, right, in ancient China and in ancient India, sure. in, in Mesoamerica, that were about way more than bartering and markets, right, um, that had to do with spiritual and cultural connection. Yeah. 
And so there's been this funny, like since the telephone got invented, there's this idea that we didn't need cities anymore. I, I remember an article in the 1980s about how like the fax machine was going to eliminate cities. <laughs> and now no one even knows what a fax machine is anymore. Right. And of course, the pandemic was the ultimate test of this, right? That like now we really have the technology, right? So we don't need to all be working in office buildings and so forth. And no question, it's putting cities to the test. But at the same time, I mean, I'm talking to you from New York. You can't get a restaurant re- reservation. All the movie theaters are filled. Yeah. So like, what's up? If we all dislike each other so much and really only get together for economic reasons, if we now have that test that says, no, actually we can work, well, not everyone, but a large po- segment of the population can work remotely. Yeah. Obviously essential workers can't. Then why isn't everyone kind of running through the hills? And we're really not, seeing that there's some balancing going on i'd say you know there's the stories about new york and san francisco losing population and a lot of that has to do with how it how expensive those cities are sure but overall we're still seeing young people want to live here my kids want to live in new york like like there's there's not a lot of debate about that among young people they don't necessarily most of them i think don't want to live out in the burbs somewhere yeah. And th- by the way, same thing is true for a lot of senior citizens who, again, want more communal connection and stuff. And so I think we have to kind of reassess our assumptions about people, like that yeah. we're not these misanthropic kind of species, but actually like all sorts of other species you see, like orangutans and other kinds of species, we build collective society. And so that doesn't mean our cities are great or perfect by any stretch of the imagination. And again, it's not always about big cities. It can be about small villages that have some of those same conditions of urbanity. But it is important to look back into ancient civilization and understand that this is who we are culturally. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, like, when you talk about urbanism and small towns, too, that there are countless small towns across the country, especially in the East, where, you know, towns have been around longer maybe but like you'll drive down a a suburban strip and there's a you know a target and a wendy's and whatever and then you'll make a turn and there will be just a great row of like you know brick buildings with apartments above and you know retail or office space at ground level that's completely abandoned in a lot of cases like what are your thoughts on just sort of bringing some of those back The, the the idea that like we want these villages we want these communities we have a lot of that, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Like, but we're we're underutilizing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. I have a lot of faith. I mean, look, this is up to people. If people want to use the shopping mall as their village green, they can. Yeah. But I again I don't think it's what young people want. I don't think that people wanna drive that much. We just did this project in Columbus, Indiana, this public space project, the town of fifty five thousand people in the middle of, you know, Heartland, Indiana. Yeah very diverse town, actually. It's downtown's had its struggles since the pandemic and even before then. You know, we went through a kind of series of, you know, 1970s, the the more consolidated shopping malls were born. Sure. And they started uh, siphoning off traffic from our main streets in small towns. What's interesting now is if you talk to most most retail experts, they'll tell you that what keeps shops alive is this idea of experience, right? Like, sure. so what's yeah, yeah. unique about the experience of going there versus ordering something online? 
So I think that people who are in real trouble are the shopping malls and then their successors, which were the big box stores and the big box outlets, right? Yeah. That stuff's all highly replicable. You can get it online. Like, why do you need to drive there, et cetera? Whereas downtowns in like places where, like, so out on Long Island, there's a town called Patchogue, where the mayor has put a tremendous amount of energy into bringing back like housing density around the train station. There are all these great restaurants. You see people walking around. Like the lesson here is usually that people beget people. So if you want to bring your downtown back, you need to start with little acupuncture moments where you get a few people down there, a community center, something, a piece of public space. That then leads to maybe a coffee shop being able to sustain itself. And then a bar opens next to the coffee shop and you get this kind of domino effect. And so I think we can bring those downtowns back. I mean, you're absolutely right. It's always so painful to me when you go through like upstate New York or Pennsylvania and you see small towns that have kind of died. But like, I think there's a chance to bring them back in a way that like, you know, we've got pockets of manufacturing coming back in this country. And those places can have that same sense of urbanity, even though there may be a few thousand people right. that New York City does in terms of just creating that buzz and atmosphere, that sense of serendipity running into your neighbor. And again, there's all of this data that now tells us that that's really good for public health and, and our cognitive function. So, so I get a lot of questions from mayors and other things that are trying to do those things in the parts of our country that are having a lot of economic distress. And then the problem is you've got the other side which are all the big popular uh, cities that have become unaffordable. And so it's, I, I think we have a big national balancing act to do between those two. Totally. I mean, part of what connected me to you initially was this editorial you wrote for the New York Times uh, about adding half a million new houses for New Yorkers uh, within the city limits. I guess before we dive into some of the specifics of that proposal, can you help for people listening that haven't ever thought about this before? How do you connect construction of housing to affordability and houselessness and sort of all the issues around housing. Like some people might not think that building more is the solution to that. How, how is new inventory helping all those issues? First of all, housing is a, is a national crisis. Most regions have a dearth of the housing that they need. There's a housing shortage in most of our big cities. Yeah, you know, One of the things that we've seen post-pandemic is as people leave more expensive cities like New York or Boston or San Francisco, and there's some of that, I still think it's a bit overblown what people talk about, but those people aren't necessarily moving to suburbs. A lot of them are moving to smaller cities. So in the last few mm-hmm. years, we've seen tremendous population growth in Nashville and Kansas City and San Antonio and like smaller cities around the country. And so now there's pressure on them. Um, to answer your basic question, though, it's a, it's a supply and demand problem. It's economics yeah. 101. We have way more demand than we have supply, and that right. pushes prices up. And that's a really true in a lot of our, interestingly, our, our big liberal cities. Yeah. Our big liberal cities, which want to think of themselves as welcoming, yeah. are also the most resistant to change and new housing. So, for instance, Building new housing in a state like Texas is a lot easier than it is in California or New York. It's sure. cheaper, it's easier. And so we have seen a lot of growth in Houston and Dallas and so forth, right? Uh, and certainly Austin. So New York 
has an abysmal housing production rate, just absolutely abysmal. We don't even build a tenth of what we need to build. And so that editorial was less of an article about economics as it was a kind of idea about neighborhood character and this notion that like people look at New York and they see this big city and they say, ah, oh, that city's full. It's filled to the brim. <laughs> right. The thing is, so we're a city of 8 million people. Yeah. We have 100,000 people, uh, maybe more, sleeping on our streets, including a lot of kids. Yeah. We have this migrant crisis, which is obviously a big political crisis nationally. Sure. And in New York, at one level, you know, the mayor has spoken about the stress that's put on the budget in here in New York City. But at the same time, we really do believe in that statue out in our harbor and like are trying to figure out if 100,000 migrants come to a city of 8 million people, we should be able to absorb that. I mean, maybe not overnight, but we should yeah. be able to absorb it. Right. But the problem is we don't have enough housing. And what that article that I did set with my firm set out to do was, you know, the Times opinion column approached us, and we've done a couple of them, a couple of these uh, kinds of articles in collaboration with them. They approached us about, like, what do we think about the housing crisis? And it actually gave us an opportunity to delve into a question that I've always wondered about, which is if you could just build lots of what's known as infill housing all over the city on yeah. empty parking lots, one-story grocery stores, um, and really kind of limited the scale of that new housing to its surrounding neighborhoods. So, you know, plus like if it was a single-family neighborhood, maybe you could have apartment buildings that were only two or three stories tall in our kind of mid-scale neighborhoods. You could go to eight stories or something like that. Again, like kind of in keeping with a lot of the buildings that are there sure, and taller buildings where there are taller buildings. I just had this gut sense that it was going to be a lot of housing. Yeah. You know, we came up with this staggering number of 520,000 homes on 10,000 right. sites around the city. Wow. And we also were quite conservative about it. We didn't propose any new housing in, in the floodplains, even though you uh-huh. can build in floodplains. But we said, let's not do that. We didn't propose any housing in landmarks districts or public housing sites that are owned separately by public and, and controlled by public housing residents. And we said only housing within a half mile of mass transit so people could use transit to get good wow. from where they were. So we really constrained ourselves. And yeah. even with those constraints... We came up with, again, 520,000 homes, enough for 1.3 million New Yorkers. And that would be enough, certainly, to assuage our homelessness crisis, our migrant crisis, as well as our affordability crisis, because the top line of that story is the average New Yorker spent about 20% of their pre-tax income on housing in 1965. That equivalent number is anywhere from 35 to 50% for the average New Yorker. So people are spending a third to a half of their paycheck before Uncle Sam comes along, right? And and plunking it down on their apartment. And so there's no way to solve that problem unless you increase housing supply. Yeah, That's what that article was about. And to me, what was interesting is I got a tremendous amount of largely positive feedback, not just from New Yorkers and New York community groups and politicians and so forth, but I also heard from people in London and California and Texas and you know there's a housing crisis everywhere 
Sure. And it's interesting because as an architect, this kind of a problem typically gets attacked by economists or policymakers. This was a, a different kind of approach because it was a it was this thing about can you keep your neighborhood character yeah. while this new housing gets built, which is everyone's fear of change coming out. Right. And so I think that's what the article tried to address pretty directly. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's something I want to ask you about too, because that is a big part of people's resistance to change is, oh, well, how will the neighborhood change? And like, I get that maybe if you're in the West Village and it's, you know, a really beautiful old, you know, houses and cobblestone streets and what it like, it's a very kind of postcard view of New York. But I don't know that people are always realistic, especially like in the outer boroughs and stuff like of really looking around their surroundings and saying like, what what here is is historic or what here is worth saving and is fighting for that worth not housing x number of my neighbors yeah and it's a that's a really interesting way to frame it look i've been doing this for a long time and that word historic in the way you used it is is really yeah. tricky because we of course in the work we do in the professional world i live in there's a very specific definition for the idea of historic Right. And there's a landmarks commission decides what historic is. Sure. But a lot of people who lived in like Bay Ridge all their lives, yeah. it's not about whether the landmarks commission said this building is historic or this church. It's the feel of the neighborhood. It's a very subjective thing. Yeah. And if you suddenly plunk a residential building that's two or three times the size of the average buildings in the neighborhood there, it can feel very out of scale. And so it's not really a question of whether it is a landmark or not, or a historic district. It's a, it's a sensibility that people have about their neighborhood. Yeah. And what we set out to prove is that you didn't have to cross that Rubicon in order to house an awful lot of people. Right. Now, there are going to be people who are against it for all sorts of other reasons. And some of them might be legitimate reasons people are worried about, like congestion in their local subway station or the number of school seats. There are a lot of ugly reasons out there. People don't want people of different colors or faiths in their neighborhood. Sure. And you have to sort of sort through all of that because often this neighborhood character thing is a Trojan horse right. for other much uglier issues. Sure. But I try to have more faith in people than that and think that like the majority of them I want to take at their word that they're legitimately concerned about their neighborhood and not you know kind of being xenophobic or whatever and that's when I think you can have a conversation you know the challenge with all this politically is people who are unhoused and people looking for housing who don't live in the city yet have no political representation yeah right so no no one speaks for them whereas yeah. people who are in established in neighborhoods can kick out a local council member or or local state legislator if they don't you know kind of toe the line about not allowing more housing so part of what the article i think is trying to do is appeal to our better angels in terms of saying for the folks who have the great privilege of being able to live in new york city Right, yeah. which I think is like a great privilege. I know it's not perfect. I know it's expensive. I know people have their complaints. This idea that like, well, other people want to live here too. And going back to where you started the entire interview, what does that have to do with climate change? New Yorkers 
not because we're angels, use about a third less carbon per capita per year than the average American. Yeah. Because we tend to use mass transit and walk, we live in apartments that heat and cool each other. And so it's just a much, much more energy efficient, climate friendly way to live. Even though the city is a heat island and we have an enormous amount of emissions on mass, but we have an enormous amount of emissions because 8 million people live here. Right. Right. And so if you accept the fact that 8 billion, by the end of the century, 10 billion people have to live somewhere somehow. Yeah. Living in denser circumstances where you're using mass transit, where you're walking, where you're living in apartment buildings as opposed to single family homes, there's no question that that is better for the environment. Yeah. It's interesting too, just in thinking about like the connection between transit and and housing. And, you know, one of the proposals in there uh, you mentioned was building on top of existing, you know, there might be a single story grocery store demolishing that and building a new building, you know, four or five stories tall with retail at the ground level and then housing above. And part of why that works, as you said, is they're within a half mile of mass transit. Like the concept of housing over even big box retail makes sense to me anywhere in the country. But if you're in Oklahoma City or something and there isn't the same uh, transit network, like you kind of run into a chicken or egg situation of transit versus housing, right? Like you, you have it in New York, but not elsewhere. Yeah. And you get places like Bethesda, Maryland, that are actually have a lot of density, yeah. but not a lot of local mass transit. And so right. what that results in is a lot of cars. Yeah. And that's, I think, one of the challenges for growing cities that don't have legacy transit systems like New York and Boston and so forth. Or the Bay Area is a classic example because it's sure. got mass transit, but it's really pretty pathetic. Yeah. But that's when we can start, you know, walking and bikes are like a really easy form of transit to deploy. Like what's called rubber tire technology, buses and so forth are getting better. They're easier to deploy. To deploy. They are flexible in terms of their routing and so forth. And so yeah. you really can apply transit solutions. But, you know, some of this is also the, the tricky thing thing about this subject when you leave places like New York is you have to change your mindset about what transit is. I mean, in a lot of the country, if I say the word bus, people's immediate association with riding the bus are poor people of color. Yeah. It's a, it's a last resort. If you, if you can't afford a car, you're on a bus. Right. And, And usually the bus service is so pathetic and so forth that you wouldn't use it unless it was your last resort, as you said. Right. Right. So, you know, there's this really famous mayor of Bogota, Colombia, who said a developed country isn't where poor people have cars. It's where rich people take transit. Oh, yeah. Right. And so if, if you think about New York, London, Tokyo, Paris, those are all cities where people across socioeconomic and racial strata take mass transit. Yeah. And so there's a mindset shift that has to happen along with kind of technocratic solutions of how you supply transit to to densifying places. There's a lot of things to juggle at the same time. But that said, you know, like take the city of Austin. People in Austin passed a bond measure to build new light rail, you know, across the city, right? Because they wanted that. So, you know, and this is happening in all sorts of places and not limited to blue states. I mean, 
there are places that are actively saying we want to live differently and downtowns from like cleveland ohio to cincinnati to you know lots of different places where people have actively sought out what i'm talking about so it's not like some kind of elite idea coming from on high right but again i think it goes back to this joy thing that like people want that sense of social connection yeah and so, you know, you look at you look at the way a, a, a city like Pittsburgh has reimagined itself. You know, there, there's a trend out there. Yeah. I mean, you touched on, too, uh, earlier that racism is at the heart of a lot of the way that we've built our cities, especially kind of in the post-war era. How do you see beginning to undo some of that, the redlining or in New York, you know, Robert Moses's work and like... Yeah. Yeah. Where does social justice come in when it comes to architecture and and urbanism? Well, I think it's intrinsically tied to environmental justice because like you mentioned, Robert Moses and the highways, you know, those highways are are serving suburban commuters who are driving through poor neighborhoods to get to the center of town. Yeah. Those neighborhoods have some of the highest childhood asthma rates. You know, the highways tore through urban fabric that was part of the kind of microeconomic ecosystem of that neighborhood, right? So now you can't cross over to the supermarket you used to go to. Maybe the supermarket goes out of business. You know, all sorts of unintended consequences flowed, um, and some would argue intended consequences. Yeah. Look, reversing that takes time, but the way I think about this with cars and highways is, uh, you know, if you're a smoker and you do all this damage to your lungs, if you quit, your lungs have this extraordinary ability to kind of reverse themselves. And yeah. over a period of time, we'll start like the x-rays will start looking like your lungs before you smoked. Mm. And I think it's the same deal with this kind of stuff that it takes time. But if you reverse policy, you will start to find a kind of healing that takes place. And I think we are seeing that in a number of cities, big and small that have decided to take this on. I think it starts with acknowledging the history. I think you can't get anywhere without acknowledging the history. And then you go from there and you start taking steps. You know, this friend of mine, Walter Hood, is a landscape architect in Oakland. He's done, uh, he's African-American. He's done extraordinary work in African-American communities, kind of reclaiming public space that was given over to highways and so forth. You know, people are so cynical. They believe that like even a low-income neighborhood, if you build a park or something, it's going to become this drug-ridden. And like that too is a kind of more racism where we've actually seen that if you give people the opportunity to take back the space in their community and they have a sense that someone cares about you, there's actual funding there, there's actual belief in a community that they will do great things with it and they will guide its existence into a different place. And so it will take time. But again, I think as fewer people drive, as we start to see policies like we're about to enact congestion pricing in New York City, which is something London and Stockholm already have, which is charging cars a lot of money to drive into downtown in the uh, yeah. in the rush hours and so forth. Very controversial, but I think very important because I think inside of a few decades, we're going to see very limited private vehicle use in mm-hmm. our inner cities. 
Like yeah. we will still have some form of shared Uber taxi kind of thing. We'll have lots of buses. We'll have freight delivery. We'll have bikes and walking for people who are able to use those modes of transportation. But I think we're going to just see fewer and fewer private cars. They take up too much space. They cause too much congestion. Even if they go electric, you know, we need to reclaim the space of a lot of those highways that Moses built and so forth. And yeah. we started to do that. I mean, if you think about the High Line as a project, sure, right? Yeah. Like it, it, I mean, even though that was for rail, just the idea that that could be public space was a miracle for that community. And so those things are happening. Uh, and I, I sense more of it around the world, actually. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. The High Line became one of those things where like it was a reuse project in New York and it worked so well that other cities built it as new construction. Like, oh, well, what if we build an elevated park that, you know, right. like it's it's such an interesting no, I thing. Know. That, yeah. The and there's, and there's uh, permutations of it happening in Atlanta and all around the world. You see different ideas of it as these sort of connected linear parts, which is great. And so that's something that's really exciting about the work I do is that like communities get really jazzed about these different ideas of how to use their space. Yeah. I want to ask you, um, speaking of the high line, just sort of the bridge between the work that you do on the private side and sort of you have an interesting perspective because you've also been on the public side of it. You were uh, the director of the Manhattan office uh, for the New York Department of City Planning under Mike Bloomberg. What did you learn about sort of working in a bureaucracy and sort of you know, I guess just having both perspectives there of the private and the public. Sure. You know, uh, I took that job soon after 9-11. It was not in my game plan. I was working as a professional architect. I was perfectly happy. And then 9-11 happened. It happened very close to where I was working. Our office actually lost someone that day. And uh, I decided to go into public service. And being Manhattan planning director right after 9-11 was a pretty heady moment because sort of a little like the moment we were in right after the pandemic there are all these articles coming out cities are dead no one's going to build another tall building again and you know there was a legitimate sense of concern in new york like would there be more attacks sure you know would we ever feel sort of safe again in the big building and what i loved about that period and you said what did i learn about bureaucracy i mean it's interesting that's such an interesting word um, because it, it, for most people represents like a really pejorative idea. And I think this is the big win for Reagan and Thatcher. They were able, you okay. know, Reagan had that famous line. You remember Reagan's famous line? Like no one's ever said, I'm from the government, not here to help. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You're probably too young to remember this. No, but I, like, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. It really stuck with people and this idea of the bureaucrat who was only there to like tax you and, right. you know, red tape for your business and so forth. I went into public service and found really dedicated people who are as educated and as smart as people who worked in Wall Street or the tech industry who made a fraction of the income, worked 80, 90, 100 hour weeks because they believed in our city. Yeah. Uh, I still interact with those folks in government. They're extraordinary. You know, government's hard and it's complicated because democracy is a messy thing. And everyone walks away unhappy, hopefully just a little bit unhappy, from every process that you go into. That's why I think democracy is so being tested right now. 
yeah. is that people feel exasperated by that idea that everyone has to be a little bit unhappy. But I think it's at the core of a successful democracy uh, because it's about compromise and it's about people figuring out differences of opinion and differences in uh, being stakeholders, right? And so someone who lives next to the high line has a different idea about what it should be than someone who lives 10 miles from it in a public housing project. Yeah, That's important. And and government has to balance all those things and often gets it imperfect. Yeah, But I loved my government job. We focused, you know, the High Line was part of all this. Well, our major focus was growing the city, getting demand back up yeah. for companies, for residents to be here. But the premise of the people from Mike Bloomberg to Dan Dockdroff, who was the deputy mayor, to Amanda Burden, who was my direct boss, she was the chair of the entire city planning commission. There was a shared philosophy about quality of life being the best investment mechanism we could create for New York City. So that mm-hmm. if if you invested in great public space, if you invested in better public infrastructure and social infrastructure and so forth, that people would come and people would come back. And sure enough, you know, the city's grown by over a million people since that period. The yeah. city budget was about $43 billion back in 2001. We're at a budget that's well over $100 billion today. Wow. That's really important. And it's the most important for people who are low income because what it means is as a city, we can put more money into social services and so forth. The reason, like you read about budget cuts maybe in New York City right now, this is because there's been some shrinkage since the pandemic. Yeah. Right. And now, of course, again, who gets hurt that like cuts to libraries, cuts to public spaces. And so this is why it's really important to keep the main economic engines of New York City firing so that there is enough money in the budget that we can provide the schools people need and the free lunches and the open spaces and so forth. Yeah. Uh, to wrap this all up, uh, you touched on something really interesting there, I think, and just this notion of democracy as being a push and pull or a give and take that, you know, yeah, not everybody gets everything they want. Uh, you know, we're coming up on an election year. We're in an election year, I guess now. And I, I can't help but feel like we should circle back to the beginning of this conversation and just this notion of kind of social isolation or, you know, not having a strong uh, community sense that can play into this idea. Like, when everybody's reduced to they're a red person, they're a blue person, whatever, and it's a caricature and you don't have a relationship with someone, you don't know who they are, or you know, you can't have that push and pull of, well, here's why this is important to me. Oh, interesting. I hear that, but here's why this is important to me. It's a lot harder to find that center, I think. I mean, I guess it's more an observation than I'm curious your thoughts on just we're in an election year and we're in a time where people are more polarized than ever. How do you get that sense of shared values back and, and finding some center to ground us, I guess? Or is that the wrong framing? Maybe I'm thinking about it wrong. Well, no, 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 I don't think so. I mean, I've driven cross country four times. And so yeah. I drive. I like driving. I just don't drive in the city. Um, but <laughs> driving cross country is an amazing experience. And I hope everyone gets to do it at some point or another. It's a vast, wonderful place. And yeah. I totally agree that people are not the red and blue caricatures that like 
people get made out to be. It's a complicated place. And it's, it's, you know, look, we're a big, diverse country. I think we have to find more things that tie rural America to urban America. Mm. Um, and there are things, you know, it's interesting, like even in terms of climate where you started, carbon emissions per capita in our big cities are low and in rural America, surprisingly, are low. It's hmm. in the burbs in between because the burbs aren't rural. Let's like like yeah. we have to uh, we have to deconstruct these things, right? It's sure, the burbs yeah. in the in between that are in the pro- that are the real problem. Like people don't landscape with gas powered tools out in farming America, right? Like that like that's the band in the middle. And the other thing is like there are interesting things like you know we want to build more housing out of what's known as tall timber, right? Yep. Uh, you know which is very environmentally conscious. But it also could be a new rural economy in places that have a lot of forests because you have to thin forests to keep them healthy. You could prefabricate building uh, materials out there and ship them to cities. We have to figure out a way to make the economy work better for both our rural and urban areas if we're going to bridge some of these divides, I think. you know. So I'm always hopeful. Uh, it is a really, really tough, tense year. Uh, but hopefully we'll get over the more insane parts of it and we'll find other ways to kind of bridge the economy and bridge us culturally. All right, there we go. Vishan Chakrabarty there. Reminds me a lot of my conversation with Saira Rao, actually, that like everything is interconnected here, right? You can't look at one piece without looking at everything. You can't look at racism on its own without looking at housing, Right. You can't look at climate without looking at housing. You can't look at climate without looking at transit. You can't look at transit without looking at housing. All of these things are so interlinked. They are so important. And I'm, I'm just, I'm grateful for Vishan's work. He's the founder and creative director at Practice for Architecture and Urbanism, known as POW. He also has two books, including a new one that will be coming out later this year called The Architecture of Urbanity, Designing for Place, Pluralism, and Planet. Make sure you get on the list to check that out. And hey, a reminder, sign up for the newsletter, heathrasala.com slash newsletter. New issues every Wednesday, every Sunday, podcast episodes right in your inbox. And if you want to be a paying member, I am greatly appreciative of the support, heathrasala.com slash newsletter. I am at heathrasala on all your favorite social media platforms. Give me a follow. Let's chat. Let's keep the conversation going. And I will talk to you in two weeks. Until then, stay safe.